This episode is part two in a two-part series on the Montana Vigilantes, and if you haven't heard the first part, we just dropped it on Monday, and I would suggest going back to that, but these were written with the idea of being kind of two separate halves in mind, so if you're fine starting in Medias, then go ahead and keep listening. So, without further ado, Death has signed a contract. Part two. Today's episode is based on the accounts written in A Decent Orderly Lynching by Frederick Allen. There's a line in the dark night that Harvey Dent gives Bruce Wayne that I absolutely love. He says, You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It's a great line because Dent is unknowingly telling it to the alter ego of Batman. Batman is possibly the most famous vigilante ever, fictional as he is, and he's controversial both in and off the comics. In the comics, he's polarizing to the citizens of Gotham City. Some see him as just another criminal committing crimes. Sure, they're crimes against criminals, but does that stop him from being a criminal? Others see him as ridding the city of the corrupt members of society. And he does not just catch common criminals, he strikes at politicians, police officers, even the mayor anyone who is tied to organized crime. Part of the problem with Batman is that he often oversteps his boundaries with the law. Sometimes he works with the law, but other times he deliberately breaks the law in the name of justice. So I ask you, listener, how far would you let Batman go before you wanted to see him put behind bars? Would it be when innocent citizens get caught in the crossfire? Or maybe when Batman decides someone is a thug, and you think that they're an upstanding member of society? What if Batman targets you? You either die a hero, or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. The Montana vigilantes are flirting with extra-legal justice. The real question is whether they have overstepped their boundaries. If you think, thus far, the Vigilance Committee has acted justly, you may want to wait until you hear the end of this tale. As Teddy Roosevelt put it, talking about the vigilantes 50 years later, quote, Technically, this was murder. Practically, it was the removal of murderers. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. Magruder disappeared on October 5, 1863. He was a Copperhead candidate running to become the delegate to Congress, and his disappearance was marked by the arrival of four strangers in Lewiston, Idaho. Lewiston was across the Rocky Mountains, the opposite side of the Montana mining camps, and it was the capital of the Idaho Territory. The four men checked into the Luna House Hotel and asked for four tickets 
on the morning stagecoach to Walla Walla, Washington. They signed in under obvious aliases and tried to conceal their faces with the collars of their coat. The owner of the hotel, Hill Beachy, was suspicious of the four because Magruder's disappearance was so close to their arrival. Beachy searched the stables of Lewiston and discovered a horse and saddle the strangers had left that belonged to Magruder. By that point, the strangers had left. Beachy was sworn in as deputy sheriff and took off to capture the four on October 23, 1863. Beachy ended up in San Francisco. He had telegraphed ahead of time, and by the time he got there, the four had been arrested by the police. Before he could take them back to Lewiston, however, the suspects filed a writ in California challenging Beachy's right to extradite them back to Idaho, which was a territory. No evidence of a crime had taken place, no witnesses, and the four feared a lynch mob is what awaited them. Beachy had to convince the court to extradite the four as long as he could guarantee them a fair trial. And Beachy explained to the crowd in Lewiston when he arrived with them that their reputations were at stake. Like the trial of George Ives, Lewiston's trial followed a similar pattern of English common law. They used circumstantial and even forensic evidence to attain a guilty verdict, and the Magruder killers are hanged. It's important to note, the killers were given their day in court, and legally the citizens of Lewiston followed the confines of the law. But across the Rocky Mountains, anarchy was beginning to plague the Montana mining camps, and the stark difference between the two encounters is striking. The Vigilance Committee had just listened to the report from Red Yeager that a vast criminal conspiracy was underway in which stagecoach robberies were taking place at the behest of the sheriff, Henry Plummer, and his deputies. With this report, the Vigilance Committee decides that no more trials are going to take place. Instead of trials, they decide to act with secret tribunals and midnight executions. The committee also decides that their jurisdiction extends to Binoc so that Plummer and his company would answer for their crimes. Plummer becomes the public enemy number one for the vigilantes. Frederick Allen put it best when he wrote, quote, To use a modern analogy, the committee was acting more in the capacity of a military tribunal assessing the threat posed by an enemy of the state than a jury judging one of its peers. End quote. Also during this time, in a series of coincidences, Dutch John Wagner is arrested by a bunch of freighters. Dutch John was part of the botched stagecoach robberies, if you remember. He actually ended up getting shot in the shoulder and was wounded. What ends up happening is he tries to hitch a ride with the uh, wagon train, and they had heard that there was this stagecoach robbery, and when they see that he had been wounded, they suspect him and they question him. And Dutch John actually explains to them that uh, he got it with like a ball and cap that exploded when he got too close to the fire. So what they ended up doing to prove him wrong was actually take a ball and cap and hold it in the fire and show that it couldn't explode in the time that he said. And using this little bit of forensic evidence to prove his guilt, they return him to Banach. The Banach elders gather together a posse and ride to Banach on January 10th of 1864. Several dozen men accompany them, and they're out to get Henry Plummer. Banach is quiet when they arrive. Henry Plummer is actually sick at his house. 
normally he's very vigilant. If you remember, he's suspicious and paranoid of everybody, especially now that the vigilance committee is out to get blood. But he happened to be sick, and he was laying on the couch with his revolver across the room when the elders arrived and took him away. The result is pretty anticlimactic. He assured his sister-in-law that nothing was wrong. On his way to the gallows, he argued for his life, proclaiming his innocence even up until his death. He said he would leave the country or take life imprisonment, but the vigilantes took no heed. They also did not allow him to prepare uh, for any sort of business ventures or funeral arrangements. Uh, They did not allow him to arrange affairs for his soon-to-be widow. While he is being captured, Ned Ray and Buck Stinson are also captured. Ned Ray is actually completely slobbering drunk, and there's conflicting accounts about how much he realized what was going on as they were hauling him to the gallows. Ned Ray is actually the first to be hanged and he manages to get his hand inside the noose, so instead of dying via his neck breaking, he strangles to death over the course of several minutes. Stinson is hanged next, and finally Plummer. Plummer pleads to the crowd one final time. Seeing some of his best friends out there, he pleads for them to intervene, but one friend silently says, No, Henry, we can't do anything for you. With that, Henry Plummer dies, via hanging. As one vigilante said, quote, It is all over. It was the hardest trial of my life. End quote. But listeners, it's not all over. At least a dozen suspects are involved in the stagecoach robberies, and they're still out there. What's more, the Vigilance Committee is overstepping its boundaries it set out for itself. This is actually a very common problem with vigilance committees. The Old West was completely chock full of them. Many citizens in these western towns did not think that the criminal justice system was working, and so they would barge into jails or secretly kidnap people to lynch that they thought had wronged the cities or the community. The common thread, though, that would always occur in these committees is that they would always set up a red line in the sand that they'd say they'll never cross. We'll get this man and then justice will be served but they always would go much farther than they originally intended with disastrous consequences. Here's a case in point. At the same time, the Magruder trial is occurring in Lewiston, Idaho. The Montana vigilantes engage in a murder. Jose Pizanthia, a Mexican miner known as the Greaser, is targeted for being nothing more than a general nuisance. His only crime in Binoc he had ever committed, was once smashing the saloon window when he was drunk, which, to be honest, is hardly a capital offense, even back then. So what happens next is despicable. The Vigilance Committee arrives on January 11th at his log house and shouts for his surrender. When no answer is made, they break into his house. Byzantia was hiding in the corner of his log house, and when two men enter, he shoots two of them. One of them is immediately mortally wounded, and the crowd calls for a bloodbath. Some of the vigilantes run to a nearby house where a howitzer cannon is nearby. They carry it to Pizanthia's home, and they blast it to smithereens. In the ruins, Pizanthia's boots are seen sticking out from underneath the door. They lift the door, and one of the vigilantes empties his revolver into the body. And if that wasn't enough, the mob drags Pizanthia by the neck, using a clothesline to a nearby pole, where they hang the corpse. Then the crowd opens fire on the body, 
filling it with more than 100 times with lead, and they only stop when they run out of ammunition. The body's cut down and burned on the bonfire constructed from his cabin's remains. This is the heroes of Alder Gulch, protectors of the mining camps, massacring a corpse. How could anyone not condemn such actions? The speed at which a vigilance committee can turn into a mob is lightning, and it's only going to get worse from here. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Back at Benach, Dutch John Wagner is executed. And once the Vigilance Committee arrives back in Virginia City on January 13, 1864, they draw up a list of six men to be put to death for various crimes. Jack Gallagher and Hayes Lyons are on the list for murder. Frank Parrish, uh, accomplice to murder. George Lane for spying. Boonhelm for murder. That's kind of a weird one because he had done a murder, but it had occurred outside the mining camps and outside Montana territory and William Hunter for robbery. Five of the men are captured inside the city limits and interrogated. They put them basically in these partitions with cloth so that they can hear each other's interrogations, trying to basically figure out you know, if they can get a major confession. Some of them do admit to being part of a stagecoach robbery ring, such as Parrish and Helm. Others, like Gallagher, do not. But they're all hanged at once, side by side. The motto of the Vigilance Committee is ordered, Men, do your duty. The convicted men offer some pretty good retorts to this. Gallagher shouted, quote, I hoped Fork Lightning will strike every strangling son of a bitch of you. Sort of in the same vein, uh, when Helm sees Gallagher strangling to death, he jokes, quote, Kick away, old fellow. I'll be in hell with you in a minute. Every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis. Let her rip. It's important to note, though, that all five of these men were not given a trial. Some of them had never even admitted to their accusations. Many of the lawyers of Alder Gulch recognized this, and they criticized the executions. Those that did were banished from the mining camps on the afternoon of the hangings. I shouldn't say all of them. Uh, one lawyer wasn't. Alexander Davis stood up to the Vigilance Committee, and he argued that the secret tribunal should not be repeated because it violated the due process of law... And this actually got him named Judge, and uh, he decides to create a people's court. The committee is convinced that this people's court should go through, and what their job is going to do is arrest the men who they think are responsible, and they're going to bring them to the people's court to be tried. However, it's going to take time for the court to be set up and convened, and in this window of opportunity, the Vigilance Committee recognizes that they can round up as many men as possible and they can hang them before Judge Davis convenes his court. This also kind of begs the question, what did the citizens of Alder Gulch think of all of this? The answer, truthfully, is not that much. Remember, most of these people are minors. They actually wanted to get the whole ordeal over with so they could get back to their claims, because the entire time these trials and hangings and executions are going on, they're losing money. It also doesn't... Uh, help that many of these people who are being executed are known bad men. So as long as they didn't involve themselves with the miners proper, everything would be fine. The Vigilance Committee left Banach on January 21st, 1864, 
on what is supposed to be their final excursion before the People's Court convenes, and it's successful. They find Steve Marshland in an abandoned cabin. He was the other man who was wounded from the botch robbery job alongside of Dutch John Wagner. He had frostbite from the cold weather, and his legs were black with gangrene. He was going to die in a matter of days because of his injuries, but this did not dissuade the vigilantes. They hanged him anyways. This is a man who is no threat to society anymore. He's bound to die, he cannot move, and he cannot be saved. Why would you hang him? At this point, the vigilantes aren't protecting society from dangerous criminals. At this point, it's just revenge they're after. They continue on to the town of Hellgate, looking for Carter and Cyrus Skinner, and they find six men implicated in the stagecoach robberies there. Cyrus Skinner, John Cooper, Bob Zachary, George Shears, Whiskey Bill Graves, and Carter himself. And all of them are executed between the 24th and the 26th. But again, it looks like revenge, not protection. Two of these men were badly injured, and most of the others were in self-exile. They want to know part of Alder Gulch anymore. The last of Henry Plummer's band, Bill Hunter, is found and hanged on February 3rd of 1864. Frederick Allen writes, quote, Their conquest was so swift, so complete, that in the space of one month, they had exhausted their license to act at will. End quote. So if you follow the Vigilance Committee's logic, then it should be expected that they're going to behave themselves now that the People's Court is going to convene. In fact, the opposite is true, and it starts with J.A. Slade. J.A. Slade is a famous man in the Old West. He's a legend. He was originally a boss on the Overland Trail, and stories had been written about him. Mark Twain and Charles Dickens were two writers who were fascinated by his trials. Mark Twain actually took part of uh, Slade's writings in his book, Roughing It. And Charles Dickens, apparently when he came over to the, the United States, asked Mark Twain to get some of Slade's writings. Now, one thing that's, again, common in the West is that Slade was a drunk, and when he was a drunk, he was an ogre. That's how Twain put him. And to be honest, when he was drunk, he could smash things and break things, but he wasn't a scoundrel. In fact, when he wasn't drunk, he was gentle, and even when drunk, he was loved by the community. He himself was a vigilante, which is why what the vigilante committee does with him is so disturbing. Slave arrived at the People's Court on March 10th, 1864, and began drunkenly shouting and causing a scene, provoking the ire of the vigilantes nearby. Slade feared for his life, and when he was confronted by the men, he ducked into a nearby store, where Judge Davis happened to be, and he pulled a gun on him. He held him hostage, telling the mob not to harm him and leave him alone. Davis said later in his writings that to be honest, he didn't think Slade would ever hurt him, and the majority of the community would say the same, but when he had to give himself up, inevitably, even though Davis sided with Slade, realistically, it was too late. The Vigilance Committee was going to hang him. Slade begged for his life as he was led to the gallows. He asked if he could see his wife one last time. Maria, who was his wife, had been with him since the beginning 
and they loved each other romantically, which is a rarity in 19th century, let alone on the frontier. Williams and his posse hanged him before she could arrive. When she did, she sobbed over the body and asked why he was given a coward's death. Judge Davis had pled with the vigilantes to not hang Slade, yet against the people's court they did so. Effectively, the court was dissolved that day. If it hasn't become clear, the Vigilance Committee is no longer the hero of this story. They've become the villain, and they will continue to use their extra-legal justice in ways that are the opposite of what we in modern times would consider the rule of law. On June 14th, 1864, James Brady and Jim Kelly are confined after shooting a minor. Brady is hanged, and Kelly receives 50 lashes, but the minor survives. In other words, they meted out capital punishment for attempted murder, which even by 19th century standards, that's excessive. On August 21st, they hang Kelly for petty crimes. But what's shocking about this is that they tracked Kelly down outside of the Montana Territory altogether after he received his lashings. In other words, they left their jurisdiction that they had set out for themselves to go hang him. The people of Alder Gulch are still supporting these excursions, by the way. The vigilantes pay for their missions using what they call a ferreting fund. It's basically a tax that the merchant class pays because they would have the most to lose in the event of a stagecoach robbery. Remember when that was what the Vigilance Committee stood against? Meanwhile, in June of 1864, Montana becomes its own territory separate from Idaho, and with it, the new governor names a county commissioner, James Fergus, to Alder Gulch, as well as a sheriff and a justice of the peace. The hope is that these officers are to replace the Vigilance Committee, and Fergus understands this. On September 10th, he writes a long letter to the Vigilance Committee asking them to disband. This is just an excerpt of it. Quote, I, for one, am willing to admit that circumstances may arise when for the benefit of the community at large, good men may be compelled to disregard the laws and the rights of the citizens for the time being and deal out swift and certain punishments on the offenders. Such, I believe, was the case last winter. Our roads were infested by highwaymen beyond the reach of our laws. Our own safety required they be eliminated. However, he continues, American citizens claim the right to be tried by the laws of their country in open court and by a jury of their countrymen, and the power that derives them of that right is a tyrant and a usurper, be it one or many. End quote. A tyrant and a usurper. By equating the Vigilance Committee with a tyrant, what Fergus is saying is that they are pretty much the antithesis of everything that is American. But the Vigilance Committee ignores his order to disband. In fact, instead, they ramp up their efforts to eradicate all nuisances of Alder Gulch, former or current. One thing that has changed since the inception of the Vigilance Committee is that their efforts consistently lead them outside of their territory. At one point, a minor reports he had been robbed by John Dalton. The vigilantes hired John McGrath to track him down, and McGrath abducted Dalton in the Utah Territory to take him back to Alder Gulch to be hanged. That action actually provoked the citizens of Alder Gulch. They were extremely angry. 
But when they tried to intervene, the vigilance committee trained their guns on the crowd until the hanging was over. The committee has now kidnapped people, incited open rebellion, and are acting against the territorial officials. It strikes me as ironic that the vigilantes are becoming a criminal enterprise much like the one they set out to fight. Now, if you're one of those few people that thinks that at least the committee has brought law and order to Alder Gulch, you're wrong. Trailside robberies still occur frequently, and although the posse tracks down the robbers, their actions are not serving as a deterrence to crime. Furthermore, the Vigilance Committee resorts to hanging their critics. On October 31st, 1864, they hang R.C. Raleigh without trial or hearing because he wrote a letter complaining about their actions. What happened then was he actually was one of the lawyers that was banished from the camps in the early days, and he ended up getting frostbite and losing his feet. But when he wrote a letter complaining about it, they hanged him. They also conspired to hang James Thurman, another lawyer who helped defend George Ives, because he was serving defamation suits for damages. I mean, think about it. Hanging your critics... That's like Saturday morning cartoon levels of villainy, folks. And in fairness, many of these hangings are now occurring late at night. Uh, They're not happening in public anymore. They're away from the prying eyes and ears. However, they are put up in public places so that people can see it. And again, hopefully it's a deterrent, which it's not. And they're still occurring. And pressure begins to mount from the citizens of Alder Gulch to put a stop to the whole mess. Many of the original members of the Vigilance Committee resigned during this. James William is the most notable of these. They begin to criticize their replacements as warping their cause. However, we gotta remember that these are people that were doing these same dastardly acts before they left. And in fact, they knew or seemed to understand this because they tried to spin their account into something more digestible for the public so that they would look like the heroes. The first source of this was, of all things, the Montana Historical Society, which was actually created by the vigilantes as an attempt to protect their reputations. The Historical Society still exists today and puts out very good work, but it's somewhat ironic that the beginnings of such an institution were not there to find history, but rather to spin it. The second source was a serialized account by uh, Thomas Dimsdale in regional newspapers published in 1866 that exonerated and provided justification for their continued existence. Both of these sources end up bringing people into the fold of the Vigilance Committee who are much more trigger-happy. For example, they end up lynching uh, James Daniels, a man who was pardoned by the governor himself, which something the vigilantes didn't take a liking to. Uh, A lot of vigilance committees in the Old West hated it when somebody would be pardoned. They also ended up seizing men from underneath the sheriff's guard and hanging them. They end up hanging horse thieves, robbers, general nuisances, all through 1865 and 1866. I wish I could say that the end of the committee is a climactic battle between the sheriff of Alder Gulch and the vigilantes but this is in Hollywood. The end of the Vigilance Committee is a whimper. In April of 1870, 
a photograph is published in national newspapers of two hung men and a crowd of men, women, and children loitering beneath the tree done to do the deed. You can actually still go and find this photograph online. It horrifies Americans, and the vigilantes, embarrassed from the incident, disband. In the 20 years that followed, numerous waves of settlers arrive in Montana, and the vigilantes are considered part of the nostalgic charm of living out there on the frontier. But realistically, the vigilantes at their end were murderers. Plain and simple. 50 men were hanged by the Montana vigilantes. In comparison, Montana's first legal execution took place in 1865, two years after the first actions of the Vigilance Committee. By the end, these were not trials of common good. These were extra-legal killings, midnight executions. What had started as an attempt to bring justice to the citizens of Alder Gulch ended up usurping it. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com. Thank you.